On October the 14th, 1987, I was three years old. A mother by the name of Reba McClure was playing in the backyard with her daughter, Jessica. The phone rang, and so she went inside. They didn't have cell phones then, really, so she went inside to to answer the phone, leaving her 18-month-year-old baby, toddler, out in the backyard by herself. In between the time that Reba, the mother, went in to answer the phone, and when she came back, it was about five minutes, and she came back and couldn't find Jessica anywhere. And it didn't take her long to look over to what was an abandoned water well and found out that Jessica had fallen into that water well. She fell down 22 feet. How many remember this? Most of you, this is a major uh, news story. In fact, they made a movie, or at least a TV show about this. It gave me nightmares for days when I watched it as a kid. But um, it's crazy how they... they rescued her. Of course, it's, it's every mother's nightmare. And she calls 911. The rescuers come. They worked around the clock for 45 hours to get her out of there. They dug a hole that was 29 feet deep and then connected a tube to the bottom side of that water well where a, a paramedic was able to inch his way in there and grab little Jessica out. They got her rescued after 45 hours, the bottom of that well all by herself. Could you imagine that? She had to get her toe amputated because her foot was above her head for 45 hours. It's no circulation. She had 15 surgeries after that accident as a result of the injuries. The truth is, Jessica, whether she got herself in that or not, in that situation, really is irrelevant. She needed help. She was literally in a situation where she could not deliver herself. She couldn't get herself out of this one. And thankfully, there was someone there to deliver her. Now, I know that that none of us, I hope, will ever fall 22 feet down into the bottom of a water well. But here's how that applies to us and to our psalm tonight. We do find ourselves in tight spots. We find ourselves, sometimes we walk into them. Sometimes it's just divine, but we find ourselves in in, in places where we're squeezed in, where we're surrounded, where it's dark, where it's discouraging, and where we cannot get ourselves out of that spot outside of the intervention of God. And that's really what Psalms 83 is about. It, It answers this question, what do we do in those kind of situations? How do we find deliverance at the bottom of an abandoned water well of life? Psalms 83 is the last psalm of Asaph. And we're going to find that the children of God in this psalm are in the same situation they've been in all the psalms leading up to this point that we've studied. Because they didn't listen to God, God allowed them to be taken captive. The enemies attacked them. They killed their loved ones. They burnt down the temple. There were a few lone survivors and those survivors were taken into exile. So now they find themselves having fallen 22 feet into a hole of their own making. And they desperately need a deliverer. Now here's what this psalm does. The psalm breaks down into two halves. Verses 1 through verse 8 is the first half, and it, it, it shows us to what extent the enemies were attacking. And, and, and it kind of shows us in our own life today to what extent our enemy attacks us. 
And then in verses number 9 through 18, we, we learn what happens when we're surrounded like that. When we need deliverance, how do we pray? What should be our heart's cry? Asaph teaches us that. Let's begin in verse 1. Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. So Asaph's prayer starts with a desire for God to say something. God to speak up in the face of this injustice and this exile and this trial. It's a way of getting God to take action on their behalf. And the next few verses, verses 2 through 8, which we'll read, tell us why they needed God to take action. Let's read together. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult. That's like a roar, a noise. And they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against the hidden ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. Then he he says who they are. Ten nations. Look at it. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the Hagarenes, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also is joined with them. That's also known as Assyria. They have hope in the children of Lot, Selah. So the psalmist mentions in verses 8 through 9 these ten neighboring nations. He said in the above verses that they had consulted together. So these ten nations have conspired together with one purpose. We want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. We don't even want to see the name Israel on our map. Now something interesting about these ten neighboring nations in our text is their location. Because if you were to locate these ten nations on a map of the ancient world, you'd notice that they surround the promised land where Israel was on three sides. The north side, the east side, and the south side, and the Mediterranean Sea was to Israel's west. Which meant this, God's people found themselves in a very tight spot, being squeezed in, being literally surrounded by their enemies. And what you'll find in prophetic scripture is that this will only be a foreshadowing of when Israel will be surrounded again in the future by ten nations. Maybe we'll get to the book of Daniel, book of Revelation in my pastoral ministry, I hope, in the next couple of years, in fact. But you can study Daniel 7 Revelation 17, and both of those passages picture this ten-nation confederation that will arise in the last day and once again threaten Israel. So Psalms 83 is, is both an historical picture and it's a picture of a future event. My question as a preacher in 2021 is how does this, how does this apply to us in the present? That's my job. I know what it means in the past. I know what it means for the future. What does it mean for us? Well, a commentator by the name of William Van Gemmeren helps me out with that. I like what he said. He identifies these 10 nations in Psalm 83 as the three kind of foes every believer faces today. Study with me for a second. The first kind of foe he labeled troublers. For Israel, that was Edom. That was the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagarites, Ammon, Philistia. And Amalek, those those were the nations that were their chronic enemies. They were always nipping at their heels. They were always troubling the Israelites. And and Mr. Van Gameren suggests that in our own struggles, this pictures our battle against the flesh. You know what the flesh is, right? It's the sinful nature 
that troubles you day after day after day. It's the sinful nature that is constantly nipping at your heels. Then he says the second kind of foe is labeled seducers. For Israel, that included Gabal and Tyre. They threaten God's people by way of enculturation. That is the, the seductive method of trying to get God's people to conform to worldly ways. This would picture, of course, our battle today against the world. I'm not talking about the globe. I'm talking about the world system, the, the sinful and immoral culture that is always trying to influence our convictions, always trying to make our lifestyle less holy. Then he said the third kind of foe is the oppressors. That was the role played by Asher, Asher, which refers to Assyria, who, you know, defeated and exiled the northern kingdom of Israel. This would represent our battle against the devil. Like Assyria was to Israel, the devil is to us. He's the powerhouse of all enemies. He's the nation behind all the attacks. And like Assyria, the devil desires, desires to constantly oppress us and, and constantly uh, threaten us and accuse us and, and deceive us and tempt us and discourage us and lie to us. What's the point? Well, you take the net effect of the flesh, the world, and the devil... And we too as believers find ourselves in the same situation that Israel found themselves in. We're surrounded by God's enemies. Now think about it. All three of these enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're portable. So I know Israel was surrounded geographically, but like we can't leave a certain town or leave a certain spot on the map and not be surrounded by our enemies. You understand that in Ephesians 6, the devil has amassed an army of demons and he has dispatched them into every corner of this globe and they have made their way into every aspect of our life. Our flesh follows us to work and to church and to home and at play. The world system has weaved its way so subtly into every square inch of your existence at work, at church, at home, and at play. I can guarantee you at some point today, no matter where you were, you felt your flesh. You felt its presence. You felt it nipping on your heels. You felt, you, you felt the temptation of the devil at some point today. It could have been an attitude. It could have been a word. It could have been a thought. I guarantee you, you felt the pull of the world system in your life today. At some point, you felt the pull of, of the world to, to lower your standards, to lower your convictions, to, 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 to conform to its way of thinking and talking and responding. I got a question. Have you ever just simply felt surrounded by these three things? You ever had one of those days, one of those scenes in life where, where it's like you're extra oppressed? You're extra trouble. You're extra seduced by these enemies of God that want to destroy your life and your testimony and your purity and your marriage and your kids and your grandkids and your joy and your peace. I'm, pre I'm preparing to preach in, in, in Mark chapter 1 um, and, and, and this coming Sunday morning. And in that portion of Scripture is a little snapshot of when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And even Jesus went through a season... Where for 40 days, he was fasting, already physically vulnerable, and he was surrounded by the devil's attack and temptation. 
And maybe you felt this way before in your life. Maybe you feel this way right now. Maybe you feel as helpless as little Jessica would have felt at the bottom of an abandoned water well. You're like, man, I just can't kick my flesh. The devil's after me right now. He's after me mentally. He's after me emotionally. He's after me physically. He's after me spiritually. How many know the devil's real? The flesh is real. I'm thankful that we don't have to give in to it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm thankful that Jesus lives within you because of his resurrection power. You can live holy in an unholy world. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to give into the world system. So don't, don't act like, like, like we got to be in self-pity here. But I am trying to be real. Sometimes we go through seasons where it's not just like an everyday temptation. It's like we know the devil's oppressing us. Watch, he can't possess us if you're a child of God. He can never possess you, but he can oppress you. And every one of us probably have walked down one of those seasons of life where it's like, I can't get this gnat off my back. What do we do in those situations? You do what Asaph did in the second half of the song. You pray. You cry out to God. And our prayer of deliverance ought to include, watch here, both a method and a motive. A method and a motive. Now, Asaph's method of prayer for deliverance was very simple. He approached God with faith that God would act in the present as he has already acted in the past. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to specifically point to two historical events in the days of the judges. He's going to look back to two of the most impressive military victories that, that God won for Israel. And he's going to find hope from those victories that if God could deliver him in the days of Judges, then God could deliver them today. So, so look at verse 9. Here's what he prays. Do unto them, that's, that's the enemies, do unto them, the enemies of God, as unto the Midianites, as to uh, Sisera, as to Jabin, at the brook of Kison, which perished at Endor. They became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, yea, all their princes as Zeba and as Almuna, who said, let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. He prays, oh my God, make them like a will as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burneth the wood and as the flame setteth the mountains on fire. So persecute them with thy tempest and make them afraid with thy storm. Let me talk about the two historical events in the days of Judges that he points back to. You can study Judges chapter 5 and 6, or 6 and 7, I think, maybe 6, 7, and 8. And, and, and you can read about how the Israelites were being oppressed for many years by the Midianites. And so they got sick of it. Now, they're only being oppressed by the Midianites because of their own sin, their own idolatry. But they humbled themselves, cried out to God for deliverance. And who did God use to deliver them from the hand of the Midianites? Gideon. Come on, you're not allowed to answer the questions. He used Midian. Where did he find Midian? At the bottom of a water well. No, he's not Jessica McClure. At the bottom of a wine press. <sighs> Silly students. And he finds him there because Gideon's a fearful man. And he doesn't want to be seen or found by the Midianites who are oppressing his people. And God finds the scared, weak Gideon. And he convinces him to surrender to the call to lead his people and to be a, be a deliverer, be a judge. 
And Gideon recruited 32,000 soldiers. Pretty good amount, but not so good when you consider that he was facing 120,000 Midianite soldiers. God said, I want you to thin that down, took it down to 22,000. God reduced it by another 10,000. And eventually Gideon had 300 men to face 120,000 men. What makes it worse is, is, is their weapons that, that God told them they could have. I, I wrote them down because I, I don't remember exactly what they were. Um, trumpets, pitchers, and torches. Sounds intimidating. Then their plan, shout, break the pitchers, wave the torches in the air, and sound the trumpets. It sounds crazy, but they did that by faith. They did their part. God did his. The Midianites panicked, Israel attacked, and they utterly destroyed all the Midianites. Now that's what you call a deliverance. That is a divine deliverance. It's impressive. That's the first story that Asaph recounts. And then he accounts a story that you could find in Judges 4 and 5. And he recalls um, that of Barak, the warrior, and Deborah, the judge, a female judge. They fought against Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera, the commander of Jabin's armies. They had been oppressed by these people for 20 long years because of their sin. So they cried out in deliverance and God raised up this woman named Deborah. Deborah then recruited this strong warrior named Barak and said, I want you to assemble 10,000 men and fight against the armies of Jabin. So his 10,000 foot soldiers faced the daunting task of attacking 900 iron chariots. Now that's like foot soldiers versus tanks. All right, so 10,000 soldiers sounds impressive until you face 900 tanks. Yet by the hand of God, they defeated Jabin and his army. Now that's not the end of the story. It's not even the most exciting part of the story. Because Sisera, the commander, when he saw that his guys were getting beat and his chariots of iron were failing, he retreated. And you know where he went? To a tent. A tent of a lady named Jael. He thought he was safe with her because of a peace agreement with their people. And so he just went in there and fell asleep. But Jael, when he fell asleep, reached into her toolbox, grabbed a hammer, grabbed a tent peg, and nailed it in the head of Sisera. Like, that's quite the alarm clock. Here's the point. God delivered them. Now, now you need to catch the significance of why Asaph specifically went back to these two historical records in the day of Judges. Two reasons. Watch, please. First, um, Israel in Psalm 83 found themselves as the weaker nation surrounded by stronger nations, right? Little Israel surrounded by ten powerful nations. Just like these nations found themselves surrounded by powerful armies in the days of Judges. So Asaph wanted God's people to recall that God used a weak man named Gideon to defeat a powerful foe. And then God used two women who would have been viewed as weak in a patriarchal society such as was then to defeat two strong men. And so now Asaph is calling upon the same strong hand of God to do for them in the present what he did for them in the past. To deliver a weak nation from the hand of ten very strong nations. And the same is true for us. We need to claim the very same thing by faith when we call upon God for, for, for deliverance in our lives. I boil it down to this phrase. We need to believe that because God has, God can. It's not the first time I've said that. 
I've used that before in, in one of these psalms before so much so that it caught on. Two by four designs. Just want you to know. Based a design off of my sermon quote. So if you buy this from then, I will personally sign the bottom of this for you. Before you hang it up. Yes, that's a humble brag and I don't care. I'm actually going to buy one of these for my office. It's such a good reminder. I'm sure it's beautiful. It's great for the home. But it's a powerful reminder, isn't it, Dad? Just simply because God has, God can. He's proven. He's faithful. He's reliable. He's dependable. He's strong. He's faithful. He's consistent. God has. God can. Now let me, let me talk about that. How many in here know for a fact God has delivered your soul from a devil's hell? Say amen. amen. You know what that means for you today? God can deliver your soul from the devil's attacks right now. God has delivered you from the pressures of the world around you. He's done that for you before. And that means that today he can deliver you from the presence of the sinful flesh within you. Hey, God has delivered many of you from an addiction that held you in bondage. And that means that he can deliver you today from an attitude that holds you in bondage. Hey, what did Asaph do? You know what he did? He took some inventory in his prayer life. He says, has God delivered us before? Oh yeah, I know my history. My granddaddy told me how, how God used a scared man at the bottom of a wine press to defeat 120,000 Midianites with, with, with 300 men with torches and trumpets and lamps and pitchers and all these crazy things. That must mean he can deliver us. Hey, God used two women and a tent peg and a hammer. To kill two powerful men and 900 chariots of iron. I think he can help us today. The point is we must activate our faith for, for the present. By looking back at how God was faithful in the past. And sometimes that's hard to do. It's easy to preach. It's easy to hang up a sign. But sometimes it's really hard to do when you're squeezed in. And you're surrounded. It's really hard to think. Is there really a way out of this? Will this get better? You know why? Because our emotions flood us. And when emotions come in, logic goes out. And so it's hard for us to think spiritual enough in that moment to go back to the record of God's faithfulness. All we can do is panic in those moments, it seems like. That's why we have to activate our faith in prayer. God has. God can. You may be thinking, yes, that's true. But what if I got myself into this situation? What if I walked into this water well? Will God still deliver me if it was my fault? Well, that's the second reason I believe why Asaph pointed back to the days of the judges. Because the reason they found themselves in trouble in Judges is the same reason the children of Israel found themselves in trouble in Psalms 83. They didn't listen to God. The reason the Mennonites oppressed them is because they were idolaters. The reason why Jabin's army oppressed him is because they were idolaters. And the reason why Babylon oppressed the nation of Israel and these ten nations were attacking them is because God was letting it happen because they were idolaters. Now here's why that's significant. Because if God in the past, with his amazing grace, 
would hear the cries of his people to deliver them out of a situation they put themselves in, such as the day of Judges, then Asaph is saying he'll be willing to show such grace again in the present. You know, you might be in a situation tonight, seriously, where you understand that, that, that the situation that, that you find yourself in is not providential in the fact that it's not a James 1 trial or a Job 1 trial where it's like God, God puts you in this situation because he wants to strengthen your faith. It's literally you walked into it. Your disobedience has put you there. Financially, something with your health, bad stewardship, impulsive decisions, Damaged relationships because of anger problems or sex addictions. And so you put yourself, like I have so often in my life, put ourselves in these kind of situations. I've got good news for you. That God in his grace can pull you out. That you have to cry out to him. He's forgiven you before, hasn't he? He's broken the chains of, of your own sin when you wrapped yourself in them, hasn't he? He's redeemed your regrets, hasn't he? Then what makes you think that his grace has expired today? That doesn't give you license to sin. That should motivate you to not sin. God said that, that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So continue to sin. Paul said, God forbid. How foolish and presumptuous that would be. But God can deliver you in the present, just like he's delivered you in the past, even if it's a situation of your own making. Boy, I love that. I love that. God has, God can. But I want you to notice the end of the psalm because Asaph revealed that he, he was praying for his enemies to be basically slaughtered. Or at least brought low. But he had a right motive in it. Look at verse 16. Fill their faces with shame. That they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish. That men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. Did you see his motive? Here's why he wanted to deliver. Because he wanted people to see who his God really was. He said, God, if you'll deliver me against insurmountable odds, if you'll deliver a, a weak nation who put themselves in this situation because of their own idolatry against 10 strong nations, if you'll do in the present what you've done in the past, here's what I want you to do. I want you to deliver us so that people will know that you are Jehovah. So his prayer wasn't vindictive, it was missional. And I wonder why you're praying to be delivered from your situation tonight. I wonder if you want to be delivered only because you want out of a tough situation. You want peace. You want ease. You want comfort. God, just let this be done. Let me get out of this season. Let me get out of this stage. Or has it ever entered into your, into your heart one time? God, would you deliver me so that the lost will make my God their God? Would you deliver me so that I have a testimony and I have a story to tell? of your goodness and grace, and I can use to bring people to you. What is your motive in asking for God's deliverance? Is it missional or is it selfish? 
Because isn't it easy to use an altar to say, God, deliver me. And we never once think. Never once think about a lost soul in that process. We think about us. We want out of the situation. Now, it's not wrong to pray for that. But may our hearts be like God's heart, that he is unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, even the most wicked of men on this earth. And and so when you pray next, God, deliver me. You need to say, God, would you please deliver me from this situation and then use your deliverance as a platform through which I can proclaim your name to the lost. God, would you help this deliverance, this miracle in my life to be a story I can tell so that people will know that my God is real. Yeah. So what do you do? What do you do whenever you find yourself surrounded by your enemies? Any given moment of any given day, the world, the flesh and the devil, you pray. You pray that God would deliver you in the present like he's delivered you in the past for the sake of his name being known to everyone. So next time you're surrounded, I want to just leave you with something very tangible tonight. Next time you're surrounded by the enemy, here's what you need to say out loud. You ready? God has, God can. That's simple. So so, so when the enemy is surrounding you with temptation, again, just say, God has, God can. Hey, you might even buy a sign. Put it in your office like I'm going to. Because I feel like some of the most, well, I just feel like, like the war ground so often is the place I pray and write sermons. <laughs> it's crazy. In that very office, I know that there's, there's spiritual warfare going on because there's, there's, there's times when I'm helping people through some very, very real issues. And so I want to be able to hang one of these suckers up, Janine, in my office and point to a broken marriage and say, God has. God can. I'll show you people in our, in our auditorium whose marriage was on the rocks because of their own doing, but God delivered them. And God can do it again. When you're surrounded by the devil, he's discouraging you. Just say, say this, God has. God can. I don't have to live here. I don't have to let him drag me through the, the, the mud of discouragement all day long. God's delivered me from discouragement and depression before. He can deliver me again. Let that faith fill your heart when you're surrounded with self-pity about your situations in life. And we all can get there, can't we? Things that just aren't changing or aren't moving fast enough. Somebody gets something that you want. Doors are opening for other people but not you. And you're wallowing your self-pity. You understand that's not God leading you to that place of emotion. That's the devil. And what you need to do is you need to say, you know what? God has. God can. Yeah, he has. He's been late. Late for people before. Mary and Martha. John 11. Their brother was so dead he was stinking. But he showed up. Four days late in their eyes, just right on time for him. I know he's four days late in some of y'all's situations right now. And because of that, your situation stinks. (laughs) But buy you one of these signs. Just remind yourself, God has. God can. He is the great deliverer, isn't he, Brother Gary? So that's tangible. Next time you're surrounded, you got a statement. That can be your weapon. Use it against the devil, the flesh, the world. 
and know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are victorious. Live that way. We're on the winning side. Stand to your feet.